So Waldo currently is a direct-to-consumer contact lens company. So we provide high-quality contacts um, on a more flexible subscription than the big players and generally at a, at a cheaper price point. Um, we launched in the UK two years ago, but now have presence in the UK, Europe and the US. Ashley Hind is the founder and CEO of Waldo Contact Lenses. You're listening to Move Your Business to the United States from Mount Bonnell Advisors, the consultants who guide you on expanding stateside. I'm Naz, or Nastran Tavakoli Far in full, and we're speaking to businesses who've actually made the move to the US. We want to hear about their journey, their experiences, and any do's or don'ts. This week, Mount Bonnell CEO Sebastian Sauborn and I are talking to Ashley Hind, who set up the contact lens subscription service Waldo here in London in 2016. And now they have an office in New York. The human eye is a miraculous instrument, perceptive, sensitive, forever tuned to the pulsating wavelengths of light. Yet the eye is hemmed in by horizons. It cannot see over a hillside or beyond the haze of distance. To extend the range of human eyesight, man developed marvelously sensitive instruments. Now, I've been wearing contact lenses since I was a teenager, and the process of getting lenses is a pretty cumbersome one, so it's a service I can imagine being super handy. We talked to Ashley to find out more about their expansion to the US. Also, don't forget to send in your questions for Sebastian. We'll be answering some in each episode. The address is info at mountbonnell.com, and we've put that in the show notes. I have been a contact lens wearer since I was 11, and always have been very grateful for contact lenses as a product. I think the fact that they allow you to see without needing to wear something on your face, is a, it's a pretty remarkable invention. But everything to do with buying them is really poor. So pricing is really high and inconsistent. The customer experience, you know, from a brand perspective, there's very little optimism or storytelling around the brand, even though it gives you vision, which is incredible. And third, there's very little flexibility. So one of the problems that I always had as a contact lens wearer was sort of running out too soon um, or having to stockpile, so having to buy sort of six months or a year's worth of contact lenses at a time. Um, so I launched Waldo really to address those pain points. So I also wear contact lenses. Good. And it, it is a bit of a pain because you yeah. have to go to the optician and yeah. do a test and then wait for them to send it and stuff. So um, can you describe how your service is different, especially because I've actually never bought contact lenses online. So yeah. I'm wondering how it's different using Waldo compared to what me and others have been doing for sure. ages. So you still need to see your eye doctor or your optician. Um, but when you sign up to Waldo, we give you a 10-day free trial so that you can get to know the lenses and sort of make sure that they work for you. But the lenses have high oxygen permeability and high moisture content. So from a product quality point of view, um, it's really a superior quality product. Um, but at a at a very good price point and a price point that's consistent 
across the board. So when you sign up, you decide how much you want to buy. If you want to buy monthly or deliver quarterly, um, you can do that. And then you can also change your delivery dates, um, your delivery address, you can pause it. So it's really trying to get your contact lens like purchasing behavior more in, in line with your lifestyle and, and how you buy contact lenses. And then the third point is around brand. You know, I, I really think that the conversation around eye health and contact lenses generally should be a much more optimistic conversation and should let customers in. You know, like to date, until I started Waldo, I didn't really know why I used the brand that I used. I didn't understand what made a good quality contact lens and what didn't. And there was very little positivity from the brand, despite the fact that you're spending so much money, you know, per year or per month on them. How much does a normal like um, contact lens wearer spend on contact lenses a year, typically? So in the US, on on dailies, um, a customer will be spending around eight hundred dollars. Um, so, like from a pricing point of view, I mean, it's a really premium priced product. Um, with Waldo, the customer will be spending between four and about four hundred dollars, depending on which plan you're on. So it's significantly cheaper. And that that's for dailies. Yeah. Okay. And do you do monthlies as well? No. So we just do dailies. Um, the reason for that is because dailies are far more hygienic for your eyes. So I think if any customer speaks to their eye doctor about that, you know, this this point will be sort of driven home. I think one of the reasons why people don't wear dailies is because of the cost. And so that's the problem that we're trying to address. And so th this is a bit of detail, but just because it might be relevant a little later. So um, let's say I want to sign up to Waldo. Mm -hmm. Do I need to get an eye test from my optician, send it to you guys? Can I just, you know, say what I think I am? How do you kind of check that I'm getting the right lens for me? Yeah. So we contact your doctor before we ship um, that out. But if there are any concerns that you have, we do have opticians in-house who can, you know, assist you with that. Okay, cool. And so can you tell us a little bit about when you started and when you decided to expand to the US? Sure. So we started in August of 2017 in the UK. Um, I initially came up with the idea for Waldo though in the US, but I had most, most of my working experience up until that point was in the UK. So I decided to launch the business here. I also think the UK is a great testing ground for consumer businesses. It's it's a very tough environment. I sort of feel like if you can make it here in the consumer product industry, you're sort of well set up to be able to expand. Um, and then we expanded to the US from the UK about a year ago. Uh, so in July of 2018. Um, but we really didn't we didn't necessarily expect how quickly that market would respond and grow. Um, we had obviously some experience with market entry from launching in Europe, uh, you know, previous to the US. Um, but the US was really a great market for us. And so we've decided to um, double down and then some on the US and um, really focus on hiring out a team there and, and investing in that market. And so why the US? Were you getting interest from people in America or, you know, were you seeing a big gap in the market? What was the reason for that? Yeah, so, I mean, you know, the US is a really big market. So I think, like, just from a market size point of view, it makes sense for, you know, for companies to be interested in the US. Um, it's a lot less fragmented than Europe. I think a lot of the time people think of Europe as, like, one 
place, but it's not. It's like a multitude of very different cultures and languages and, you know, payment gateways and all of that. Um, and then third is is really the cost of contact lenses in, in the US is is really high, like much higher than in than in Europe. So from a pricing point of view, I think we're solving even more of a problem in the US than what we are in the UK or Europe, arguably. So earlier you were saying... Um, the cost of a year's worth of dailies is about $800. Yeah. And with you guys, it's about $400. Yeah. And you, do you know approximately how many dollars that would be in the UK, just so we've got some comparison? Yeah, so in, in the UK, it would be about $600. Okay. Um, so in the UK, we're, I mean, depending on the site, there's a lot of inconsistency in price. Um, but typically, we're about 15% cheaper in the UK, whereas in the US, we're about 40% cheaper. Okay. And so you guys just opened up an office in the US? Yeah. Okay. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So we've just opened up an office in New York, um, growing, uh, hiring hiring quickly. Um, I mean, our, we've got a logistics set up in the US that we, that we have done for a while, but this is really about sort of getting people on the ground and, you know, affirming our presence over there. Um, so some of our UK team has moved over to the US to facilitate the opening of that office. Um, but yeah, we're really excited. Why did you choose to go to New York and um, specifically and not another place in the US, for example? So I think the East Coast as a UK business presents a lot of, you know, a lot of ease from a communication standpoint, like, you know, back to the team in London. Um, the New York is also really a hub at the moment for consumer businesses across the board. So it's good for Waldo to be like in that environment. Um, but honestly, we didn't do like we didn't do a big procurement exercise across the across the US. I've lived in I mean across the East Coast. I've lived in New York before. Um, you know, I've got a network over there, so it made sense from that perspective as well. So you've been selling to American customers since summer 2018. Yeah. Um, what made you think that, you know, we actually need to have a presence there? What was the reason for that? Um, so I think market dynamics mostly. Um, you know, the fact that we, we'd had a lot of success in the UK um, and we'd built up a lot of infrastructure that we believed could be well replicated in the US. And so, you know, we started it as a test. We didn't go in like guns blazing for lack of a better um, description, but we tested it and we got really good results. And so we continue to invest. Let's go to beauty headquarters. Yes, Hollywood. And meet famous Paramount makeup man, Eddie Sands, who thinks that glasses like hairdos can flatter the features that just like eyebrow and lip lines, the lines of one's glasses can bring out good points, make bad points inconspicuous. When an actress's role calls for specs, it's just part of the normal makeup problem to Eddie, and the way he's solved this problem can be of tremendous value to the 10 million American women outside of Hollywood who have to wear glasses, not to play in pictures, but because of eyesight. Eddie's drawings give you the lowdown based on two fundamental types of faces, the round face and the long face. First, the hair. High and close for the round face, but low and wide for the long face. Lipstick next.
So the people that you have in the US right now, the team, what are they mainly? Customer service, marketing, what do they what do they actually do? Yeah, so mostly um, operations and marketing in in the US. Where do you where the, where the contact lenses actually made? Are they made in the US or in Asia or here? How how do you do that? They're made in Taiwan. All right, okay. Yeah. Uh, so we work with one of the biggest contact lens manufacturers globally. And then you have storage facilities in the US and I guess here. Yeah, that's localized. And then just going back to the, to the nitty gritty of it. So um, you were explaining how in the UK you'd sign up. Um, is it different in the US? And also because I'm thinking countries have their own sort of medical practices and ways of doing things. Yeah. So in the US, we uh, you have to give. So in the US, you have to give your um, doctor's details, and we contact the doctor on on your behalf. So every country does have sort of slightly different um, regulations and rules. Um, but the way that we've built up our like tech stack allows for, for those variances. So one thing I wanted to know about is how you market in the US compared to here. Yeah, so I mean fairly similar channels um, and fairly similar messaging. One of the main things that about, you know, Waldo as a brand is that I really want it to be consistent and transparent for customers. So it's important for us that customers, whether they're in the UK, the US, Europe, they have a similar experience of our product and our user journey. So that's very similar and our brand messaging is is very consistent. Um, from a marketing channel perspective, we are primarily invest in, in digital marketing. Um, so social media, you know, Google Pay, that's a lot of where our early traffic has come from. Um, but we're definitely diversifying our spend as, you know, all D2C companies and e-commerce businesses are. So we've invested in offline podcasts, radio, YouTube. Um, and I think really like it's that scale of marketing channels and understanding where your customers really are that like ultimately builds longevity in an e-commerce business. And I'm wondering, are there, um, what, what are the reasons customers come to you in the US compared to here? I'm wondering if you get any feedback from customers saying like why they chose you guys. Yeah, so um, a lot of it's around the flexibility. I think initially it's, it's price, um, but then, you know, our customers that are really high lifetime value customers and have been with us for a long time, most of that's around the flexibility of the subscription and the ability to tailor it to what they need. And then also the on-demand customer service. So the fact that they can speak to somebody, you know, within sort of 10 seconds of, of giving us a call. Um, I think that that sort of direct relationship is something that hasn't really existed in the pharmaceutical contact lens industry before. And so we're really trying to humanize it more than just the cus the customer experience when they go to their doctor, um, you know, which is once a year or once every two years. And when you say flexibility, does that mean they can, they don't have to sign up to a long contract so they can basically start a, a subscription and then cancel it after a month if they want to? Or yeah. what, what's the flexibility that you're talking about? Well, the flexibility that I'm talking about is really like if a customer doesn't wear contact lenses every day right. and so doesn't want to buy six months at a time which they might have to do if they're going through some of the traditional channels they can order a monthly subscription delivered every 12 weeks um, that more fits in with their lifestyle so a lot of customers will wear contact lenses um, on the weekend or during the week when they 
are playing football or playing tennis, um, but the rest of the time they want to buy, want to wear glasses. And so we, we offer them flexibility around that. Oh, that makes sense, yeah. Um, so Ashley, I wanted to know about the logistical steps of setting up an office yeah. in the US and also if there were any unexpected things that came up. Yeah, so I think that those, those problems that come up, I wouldn't say that setting up in the US was necessarily you know, presented to us like new challenges that we hadn't experienced in the UK before. I think one of the good things is that we had had the experience of setting up the business in the UK. And so, you know, a lot of those pain points we were ready for. Um, I think one of the unique things about the US is uh, state tax. Um, I mean, that's really, you know, quite a like critical difference between the UK and, and the US. But that's not so dissimilar to Europe. You know, um, so I think like from that perspective, we were fairly ready for that, having expanded to Europe already. Um, and then setting up in in the US has, I mean, in some ways it's actually been quite a lot easier because we've had the experience of the UK. We found people in the US to be super helpful, um, very open to feedback, making, um, you know, making introductions, seeing where they can be helpful. And yeah, that's been great. I mean, some of our investors are from the US as well, so that's helped. Um, you know, from that perspective, we'd ha we've had people on the ground since, you know, before we officially set up offices there. And how much has it helped you that you had a personal network there already from living in New York uh, previously? Yeah, that's super helpful. Yeah. Um, I think just in terms of like network and even the shock factor of being somewhere new, you know, it, It always takes some time to just to adapt to a new place. So that definitely removed some of that friction, which was great. So meaning also that I guess um, it was very useful for you to have that boots on the ground experience from, from living there previously, I assume. Yeah, so I think it was helpful. I don't think it's necessarily a make or break. I think if I hadn't, you know, if I hadn't have lived there previously we still would have gone. But I think it does make it easier. Mm. Yeah. So you told us uh, when we were setting up that you've actually moved over to yeah. New York. Yeah. Um, what, what was the reason for that? Um, so essentially to set up the office there and like make sure that there's um, a management presence. You know, to be honest, it's not... At the moment, I'm balancing the UK and, and the US office. It's not too difficult. I mean, it's a five-hour time difference, so communication is fairly easy. Um, and I mean, it's actually as far as New York to California. So yeah, it's been manageable. But do you think um, it would have been possible to for you to stay here and still set up the office? Or do you think it really needs your presence to be able to make that expansion happen? I think it would be possible. Um, I'm not sure, to be honest. Because we've done it this way, um, I don't know how the alternative would have looked. Um, but I wanted to make sure that certainly from a hiring point of view and, you know, those initial first hires and the initial space that we choose that, you know, a lot of those values were like brought across from the UK. And I'm not the only one that's there. So there's two people from our team in the UK that are there now. Um, and I do think it's important from an integration point of view to make sure that, you know, both teams feel connected to the other office. This is Move Your Business to the United States from Mount Bonnell Advisors, the consultants who help you expand stateside. So I'm here with Mount Bonnell CEO Sebastian Sauborn. Sebastian, we have had some questions coming in. 
And we have a question from John in Glasgow. He wants to know about business taxes in the US. What are they like? Great, that's a very good question. Um, of course, it's very complicated, uh, but we make it, um, you know, we make it short and, and, and sweet. So, generally speaking, um, business taxes depend on how you operate in the United States, if you operate as a sort of sole trader. Most of our clients will operate as a corporation. So a corporation is actually very similar to the type of corporations that we know in the UK and in Europe. Um, so the UK Limited Company. So it pays a corporation tax. The main difference in the US is that you have corporation tax on two different levels, one on the federal level and one in the, on the state level. While um, in countries like the UK, for example, there's only one tax rate across the board. The federal level in the United States is 21%, so every company has to pay that on their profits. And then depending on where the company is based, uh, where it operates from, um, it has to pay, in addition to that, state corporate income taxes. They're typically quite low. I mean, they could be 4%, 6%, 5%. Uh, California and New York have the highest corporate tax rate at around 9%. Um, so, um, you would look at a total uh, uh, level of uh, corporation tax between 21 and, say, 30%. And that's it. It sounded from what you've said before pretty much when you were talking about that the UK is a good um, sort of sandbox, so yeah. to speak, that you had the intention right from the beginning to make this a US-centric business because of the size of the market and um, the, you know, the, the, the even greater benefits that your brand could offer there. Um, the, um, is, is that right? Is that yeah. absolutely right? Okay. Yeah. And I think that changes also the way how you actually um, plan and outline a business, right? I think this is why also your presence now so much is so much impo more important there because this was always, I think, from what I understand, considered your main market, at least at this point. Yeah, so definitely at this point. But my thinking was that, you know, we had to crack the UK first. So if we hadn't have had success in the UK or if we identified sort of serious flaws in the model or brand, um, we wouldn't have continued to expand into the US. So it was definitely a sort of step-by-step -step, uh, process. But it was definitely on my radar. And I think, you know, a lot of other founders that I speak to, the US is absolutely on their radar just because of the size of the market, um, if nothing else, actually. So, but I think a lot of the question is how do they go about it? And, you know, can they stretch themselves and the business far enough? So it's interesting you mentioned other founders. So I'm wondering when you were making this expansion initially, um, were there sort of groups of founders you could talk to, get tips, you know, kind of uh, swap expertise? Because it can be quite a scary thing going into a new market, even if, you know, you have some yeah. background. Um, yes, absolutely. And, you know, as I've started the Waldo journey, I've tried to, like, make sure that I'm building up my founder network. And um, that's a really strong network actually um, so there's a couple of groups I mean in the UK there's a group called founders uh, and without the E um, and that's a really great community of, of founders across um, across both 
geographies um, and of businesses at, at very different scales. And they've got a portal that allows like a lot of like, you know, Q&A and, you know, forums and they host events and stuff. So that's good. Um, and then also in the US, there's a female founders network called HERS, which has been helpful. Um, but yeah, I mean, definitely across the board, like that founder network is is really important and helpful for intros and stuff. And and given this, are there sort of any classic mistakes people make when they're expanding? Um, I'm not sure. I think every business is different. Everybody, because every founder has a different skill set, you know, I think every founder is just going to be likely to make different mistakes. But the overall, I think, you know, one of the most difficult challenges that every founder faces, I think, in every market is hiring. And making sure that you can successfully hire in different countries and, you know, where cultures might be quite different. I think that's a big learning curve for, for any founder. And generally I find across the board, that's what everybody's talking about. And how's that journey been for you guys with, with this new expansion? Yeah, good. I mean, now, you know, there's enough people on board that have been with Waldo for long enough that the hiring process is it's become a lot more formalized than it was in, in the early days when, you know, maybe there wasn't much of a process and it was just a coffee. Um, but now there's a few more steps in the process and a few more people involved. So you can eliminate some bias that way. Um, but we're still learning. I mean, you know, that's, it's been good for us so far, but it's still always a challenge. Like great people in your business just is the most important thing. And, finding those people and you know it's it's tough you're smiling which makes me wonder if there's a <laughs> if there's a story <laughs> no I mean it's just um there's not a story it's just you know think I was thinking back on you know a lot of the team members that we've had from the beginning and there's like a nostalgia that comes with that a little bit you know it's like it's great when you think about these people that have you know been with you from that first coffee all the way to now and, you know, thinking of how their roles have, roles have changed. So I'm thinking more about that. The, um, we, we spoke to a few uh, female entrepreneurs already. Yeah. And some of them are in the tech industry, uh, Silicon Valley. So, so they expanded uh, to San Francisco. And some of them were quite bluntly uh, sort of in, in telling us stories that that industry was very, like, male-dominated. Yeah. And I'm not sure there's a difference between the UK and the US, but this is something they found difficult. Yeah. Or at least challenging, at least. Um, and noticeable to, as well. And noticeable, yeah. definitely. Um, how is that in your industry? And did you make any similar experiences? Yeah, I mean, I haven't experienced that the UK is very different from the US in that front. Um, generally, just within the VC community and the investing community as a whole, it's far more male-dominated. I mean, that's just fact. Um, more than that, I mean, the optical, like pharmaceutical industry is very male dominated as well. Um, when I go to, you know, trade shows and optical fairs, there's, there's very few women, but yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of it's changing. There's a lot of awareness in, in the space. A lot of VCs are becoming very conscious about it, which is a great thing. Um, you know, there've been a lot of alarming stats about investment going to female founders versus male founders, and I think that funds are trying to address that. Certainly, you know, the big reputable ones are, and I think the smaller ones will follow too. But that needs to happen from angel phase. I mean, 
yeah, it has to sort of be grassroots up. Do you have any female investors? I don't. Something I'd like to change, though. <laughs> well, you would be one of the first ones probably <laughs> investing in other businesses. <laughs> yeah, I hope. I hope so. Really, like, I think that that's very important. Yes, science has entered every field of beauty today. No matter what the problem or what type of face we have, advice is available to us. So that in a highly competitive world where appearance counts for so much, each of us can always look his best. So when we were preparing uh, for this conversation, um, we, we read that um, some of the Tinder founders uh, were investing um, into your business in general, um, where did you find it easier to get investment in Europe, in the UK or in the US? So probably the UK initially, just because that's where the business was and I didn't have as big a network in the US. But, you know, subsequent to launching in the US and like gaining a presence there, I think, I, I don't know whether or not it's been easier, but um You know, certainly we've we found that it's that it's just needed to happen. It's important, um, which goes back to sort of building a network in the U.S. and sort of just getting U.S. capital on the cap table. Um, I think generally the pools of capital are much larger in the U.S., but I think that that's I think that that's a generalization, and I think that that you know also goes hand in hand with just the size of the market. So, yeah, I've had you know, fairly similar experiences in, on both sides of the pond. I think, I think that, um, I, th I think what you're saying is, it's also interesting because, um, I was completely unaware of the, of the contact lens market and challenges that contact lens wearers face yeah. on a day-to-day -day basis. And you yeah. have, yeah. you have a perfect <laughs> exactly. Um, so the, the problem that your business solves, I was not aware that it is a problem. Right? Yeah. So are the investors also contact lens wearers? <laughs> so <laughs> many are. Um, it would make sense. And that yeah, makes it, it easier. Sense. It makes yeah. an easier conversation. Yeah. Um, and then they also wear the product, right? So they can wear and try the product and actually, you know, have an opinion on, on how it feels. Um, but where they don't, generally their partner does or somebody in their immediate circle does so they understand the pain point. I think... You know, even if your partner wears contact lenses, you're very up to speed with the problems that a contact lens wearer faces. I think so. I mean, once you wear them or you have a close or a loved one who wears them, I mean, I get you instantly get yeah. it. You know, yeah. you instantly and get it. And it becomes the thing. a it becomes a point of um, discussion. So when you know, even if I'm just speaking to a, a customer, sort of um, getting anecdotal feedback, I mean, you start getting into all of these contact lens specific problems you know and, and it becomes quite funny so it can really become like a topic that people can connect over um, and I think that just indicates how personal and important the product is that the moment you bring it to light there's this whole conversation that unfolds about what wearing contact lenses is like for you and yeah I think just a lot of brands haven't really had those conversations with their customers I'm just thinking about how the most annoying thing is, you know, when you fly and you want to take yeah. your solution and yeah. they always confiscate it at the airport, yeah. which is like really exactly. annoying. Which they won't do with dailies. <laughs> exactly. So, That's true. Yeah. It's a lot more helpful from that perspective. Um, but yeah, I mean, when you're sitting and you like don't know where to put them and then you take them out, it's, yeah. So one thing I wanted to ask about is that 
there are some very big cultural differences in terms of how we approach healthcare mm-hmm. here compared to the US. Um, how has that affected the way you market or the way people approach your company or maybe investors? Um, just kind of, I just feel like the conversations are very different in terms of healthcare, who we expect to provide it, mm-hmm. um, how involved we are as consumers. So I think when it comes to contact lenses, it is such a personal product that generally consumers are, um, they're pretty involved in in sort of the purchase um, of that. And more and more we're seeing customers, you know, look online to try and understand the space and, you know, get themselves up to speed. Um, but typically, you know, for us, there's there's differences in regulation around sort of CE approval versus FDA approval. Um, CE meaning an FDA. Europe, so like um, approved for Europe sale. So there are some brands that have Europe approval, but not FDA approval. Um, we from the beginning and always will only bring products to market that are approved in both um, in both markets. So I think there's a there's a difference there. And then you know the other difference is that um, health insurance is is much bigger in in the US versus like something like NHS. Um, but even you know on the on the NHS, um, you know primarily glasses are covered, but contact lenses the customer generally pays out of pocket for. So generally I think contact lenses are sort of a more premium product. So there's a lot of variances within both markets. I wouldn't say, you know, one is standardized and so is the other. And then here are the key differences. It more depends on that customer's healthcare plan. And, you know. and that is the same in the US. So the healthcare plans would not cover the contact lenses? No, so a lot of, a lot of them do. But oh. it just depends on um, what kind of plan you're on and whether you've got uh, vision cover. But a lot of them, yeah, a lot of them will do or will at least cover a portion of it. So I lived for a long time in the US and um, I mean, as I said, I wasn't aware of the contact lens um, sort of um, a market, but with other healthcare um, subscription and supplies, the manufacturer would actually deal directly with the health insurance companies, mm-hmm. right? So the that the user didn't have to do that. So um, all the paperwork and everything that's involved would be done by the manufacturer. Is that something that you do? Do you deal with the insurance companies? So not yet, but we we are um, actively looking to partner with insurance companies at the moment. But the customer can do that themselves at the moment. So they can, um, like we provide that on the website, like the ability for them to download what they need for their insurance plan. Right. But they would still essentially be reimbursed yeah. uh, for the expenses. But in the future, you're looking into partnering directly. So it's a completely smooth uh, yeah. process. Yeah, that's, exactly. a, that's a great benefit. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I wanted to know a little bit about setting up in general. Mm-hmm. Um, would you have any tips, any do's or don'ts to companies who are eyeing that market and wanting to, to make the expansion? Yeah, so I think, I think get a framework and set up beforehand. Um, make sure that your like paperwork and processes are, are in place. I think that that's sort of super important and then I think make sure that you budget correctly depending on where you go in in the US um, obviously it's, it's very different but I think you can't just assume the same hiring costs office costs legal costs in the UK as what it is in the US um, 
So I'd say, yeah, really like get your paperwork in check, make sure that your budget is accurate. Because the other thing you really don't want to do is put your UK business on the line to take a stab at the US and it ends up costing you a lot more than what you budgeted for and you end up, frankly, just putting both businesses on the line. So I think you need to make sure that you've got the capital and the plan in place to launch in the US. Well, this is something we're hearing from a lot of people that it costs more than yeah. they expected. Yeah. And it takes longer than expected to get yeah. some of the things set up. I think yeah. that's normal in the entrepreneurial life anyway, right? That's right, not you just always about think that. something's going to take exactly. a week and then <laughs> six months later. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so um, if you had to do anything differently, what, what, what would that be? Probably launch in the US sooner. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, we got traction there very early on. And, but for those reasons, you know, that I just said, I'm probably more on the cautious risk averse side of most founders. And so um, I probably left it quite a lot later than now in hindsight I would have. But also knowing what I knew then is different to what I know now. So, you know, I I don't like to sort of uh, get too hung up on, the should have, could have. <laughs> but I think compared to others, you, I mean, you found the business in 2017, right? Yeah. And like last one year later, you already expanded to the US. I think f- compared to most companies, that's a pretty quick yeah, progression. I mean, I mean, you know, so you don't need to beat, it, beat yourself up about that. It's pretty <laughs> quick. Yeah, so. <laughs> Always feel like it should be faster. <laughs> are you, I mean, are you, because you said before that you're also active in Europe, are you planning to sell to more European markets or is that going to be too complicated? I mean, because of health insurance regulations and all that. So, so, so we what currently do sell to the whole of Europe, um, but we're not investing in that as much as we are in, in the US and the UK. Um, but we do have, you know, tens of thousands of subscribers across Europe um, and we've got logistics set up there. Um, so, yeah, you know, we're looking at it, but we are also just making sure that we focus on the right areas. So, um, Ashley, where can people learn um, more about you and your company? Sure. So on highwaldo.com, you can learn all about us, our lenses, and sign up for your free trial. You've been listening to Move Your Business to the United States from Mount Vernell Advisors. I'm Nastran Tavakoli-Far, and today's guest was Ashley Hind of Waldo, who are at highwaldo.com. Emmett Glynn is our sound engineer, and Novena Paunovich is our podcast manager. You'll have also heard some samples from the Prelinger Archives, who have some great historical material from the U.S. We're back in two weeks. Send us your questions about expanding to the U.S. The address is info at mountbonnell.com. That's M-T-B-O-N-N-E-L-L dot com. We'll see the show notes for more. Okay, we'll speak to you soon.